Today we're going to be talking about the wise men. Anybody ever heard of the wise men in the Christmas story? We all have, right? Well, let me test you before we get into all that on your Christmas shopping prowess. Let me just say that how many of you have at least half of your Christmas shopping done already? At least half. Wow, you guys are awesome. Okay, the bigger question, how many of you haven't started your Christmas shopping yet? Some of you are not raising your hands. I know that. Don't feel bad. I'm in that boat too. How many of you have got it all done? Had it done for weeks? We hate you guys. <laughs> Christmas shopping to some can be fun. To others, it can be really hard, very difficult. Did you hear the one about the guy who went out and bought his wife for Christmas a beautiful sparkling diamond ring? He showed it to a buddy of his, and his buddy said, Wait a minute. I thought she wanted one of those fancy four-wheel drive vehicles. And he said, well, she did, but where in the world are you going to find a fake Jeep? Some of you will get it later. My point is, I hope your shopping is a whole lot more sincere than the man's in my joke, okay? I hope your shopping and your giving is as sincere as the wise men that we're going to talk about today. Most of us have heard this story every Christmas since we can remember, we think of it as a little quaint little Christmas bedtime story, but the truth is there's some powerful truths in this story that we miss so much of the time. So today, again, like last week, we're going to kind of walk through it. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to what it says. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. First of all, I think we have some wrong assumptions about the birth of Christ. I mean, think about this. Even our Christmas carols turn the birth of Christ into this Hallmark movie moment, right? Whenever it's really this chaotic, inconvenient, oh my God, she's having the baby moment, amen? We turn it into a Hallmark movie event. Think about our Christmas carol, Silent Night, O Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. Anybody ever been there to witness the birth of a baby? I have. They aren't silent nights. All is not calm, all is not bright. Even after the epidural, all is not calm and all is not bright. Amen, ladies? You know what I'm talking about. How about this one? Away in a manger. Think of these words. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Really? <laughs> if on the first night of your baby's birth, he wakes up in the morning and looks up and he's got this huge cow staring him in the face, mooing, I doubt if no crying he makes. Amen? I kind of doubt it. Secondly, I hate to mess your thoughts up on the nativity scene. Do you realize that the wise men weren't even there at the birth of Christ? No. They didn't even start traveling to find Jesus until they heard of his birth. At home, we've got a nativity scene that sits on the table by the front door. I thought about taking the wise men out of the scene, moving them across the room, putting them on another table to be accurate. That would be accurate because they were on their way. I'm not sure Cheryl would appreciate it. But wait a minute, I'm the spiritual leader in our house. I can do what I want. No, I still want to live in my house. Amen? But if you really want to be accurate, why don't we bring the wise men about, out about June, okay? 
and have a Christmas part two event because that would be more accurate. Uh, a third thing, we always assume that there were three wise men. Isn't that the way you've always thought? Well, the Bible doesn't say there were only three. The only thing it talks about when it comes to numbers is they brought three gifts. The Bible doesn't says, say there were three or 53. But think about this. Would common sense tell you you wouldn't take off on a long, dangerous journey traveling with some great riches if there were only two other guys with you? Probably not, because back then there were thieves and robbers along the way just like there are today. In fact, really the truth is, if you're referring to a school of astrologers like these guys were, there probably would have been at least 10 or 12 of them, and I'm going to go as far as to saying they would have been a caravan. They probably would have brought their wife and their children, their servants, maybe a donkey or a mule or two or a camel or two. Plus, it also gives us a little hint in verse 3. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. The fact that they were disturbed and troubled and troubled a whole city kind of tells me something. Three guys riding into town on camels probably wouldn't have gotten the attention of the whole city. So I'm guessing it's a bigger group than that. I'm guessing it's a huge group. So who were these guys? Have you ever really thought who these wise men really were? Tradition says they, they were men of high position from Parthia, actually, from Persia, near the site of ancient Babylon. Remember, Babylon was the place that the children of Israel were exiled to. People like Daniel, remember him, the guy that got thrown into the lion's den? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the three Hebrew children that got thrown into the fiery furnace. I have an idea that they had heard from Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about the writings of Moses and the prophets. So these magi actually may not have been very orthodox in their faith. They weren't believers. But still they were looking for the coming Messiah. That tells us something. And think about the Old Testament writings of Moses and the prophets. They're full of prophecies about the coming Messiah. One of those prophecies is Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It says, A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, which means a king is coming. A king is going to be born, who's going to rule the whole world, who's going to bring peace on earth, going to bring peace to nations and to the world. These guys, these astrologers, took Numbers 24, 17, literally, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel, and so they searched the skies for generation after generation, looking for a sign that the Messiah was coming, and when they saw the star... They rejoiced, and they started following that star, seeking the one that was going to be born king of the Jews. These men were also called magi. Magi, if you think about it, is the root word for magician, right? These guys weren't the guys that were showing up pulling scarves out of their sleeves, rabbits out of hats at rotary clubs and things like that. No, they, they were astrologers. Don't think the kooky stargazing club either, because these guys took very serious what they were doing they actually believed that the stars in the skies predicted the future, actually told of your fate. And even though they were pagan, unbelievers, they were at least aware, and I think this is credit to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and people like that, they were aware of the God of Israel. They were aware of this God that they didn't even know. I would say they had an inkling. They had a burning inside that some truth was out there worth Packing up stuff, their greatest treasures, taking this long, dangerous journey for. I believe there was something burning in these wise men's hearts that said something is out there and we've got to find it. Something is out there and we've got to go looking for it. Verse 3 again says, when King Herod heard this, 
He was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Let me give you a little background on Herod. I don't know if you know anything about King Herod, a king of Israel, but he was the worst of the worst. I mean, he was the worst tyrant kings, one of the worst tyrant kings that Israel had ever had. I'll just go ahead and say it. He was psychotically paranoid about losing his power, losing his position, so much so that he had his wife killed because he thought she was conspiring against him. A little bit later, he had his uh, wife's mother and her brother killed, and a little time after that, he had three of his son's sons, which would have been his grandsons, killed for the same reason. And get this, when he was inaugurated as king, he invited all of the family enemies to the palace for a feast as a show of, of a peace, and on their way home, he had them ambushed and killed. Nice guy, right? One of the worst things he did, think about this, when he was on his deathbed, he ordered that dozens of other noblemen in his own country would be executed at the same time that he died. Why did he do that? Because he knew if he was the only one that died, no one would mourn because they all hated him so much. So he thought, if I get these other guys to, to mourn, uh, I mean, get these other guys to be killed, people will be mourning for them and I can kind of get in on the action. He cared nothing for anything but himself. Look at verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet, and they're talking about Micah, has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Now, you'd expect the next verse to read all the scribes, all the religious leaders, packed everything they had and hightailed it for Bethlehem to find Jesus, right? Nope. Didn't happen that way. The religious people weren't even looking for Jesus. Sounds a little bit like a lot of people today. Amen? Verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Does he really want to go and worship Jesus? No. He's pretending worship, but he's intending murder. He's pretending like he wants to go worship, but he's out to find Jesus so he can kill this newborn baby. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let me stop here to bring out another point. The gospel, actually the word of God, was written for the world. You realize that? It was written for the nations. Think about how Matthew started out his gospel portraying Jesus. Think about how he ended his gospel portraying Jesus as a universal Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for the world. Think about it. His first worshipers were magicians. Not only that, they were pagan magicians. They were astrologers. They were wise men, and not from Israel, but from the east, probably from Babylon, which this tells us they were Gentiles. They were unbelievers. They were unclean. That's really important to remember, the first worshipers, who they were. Think about the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
They all tell basically the same story, but they were written to different audiences. Matthew's assignment was to write to the Jews. His purpose of writing to the Jews was to show the Jews that this Jesus born in Bethlehem was the Messiah and the King. But I think it's really interesting that the first people who came to worship Jesus, pagan wise men, no accident. But then think about how Matthew finishes out the book of Matthew. With what? The Great Commission. Remember that? Matthew's first word says, hey, there's a newborn baby, a Messiah born. Let's come and see him. His last words are, go and tell about him. He says, go into all the Gentile nations and preach the gospel. So Matthew begins his gospel by saying to the world, come and see. But he ends the gospel in saying, go and tell. That's important too. Come and see, then go and tell. Matthew shows us, I believe, by God inviting pagan astrologers to be the first to worship Jesus at his birthday party. He did that to make a point. And he commanded the stars to do what they did to bring them there. I think God is trying to tell us it wasn't Herod that was in control. He was in control. God was in control of the heavens and earth. He manipulated everything. He controls governments. He controls world leaders. The truth is there is not one square inch of this entire universe that is not under God's total and complete control. Amen? And I think when you think of this gospel, it was the most inclusive message ever brought forth because it brought all people together, put them on an equal playing field. All races, all colors, educated and uneducated, rich and poor, righteous and unrighteous. And the whole reason was because this whole world always has had a common problem, sin. And the only answer to that problem, the only one answer to that problem is J-E-S-U-S. Amen? Jesus is the only answer to that problem. You might say this is the cradle that rocked the entire world and turned it upside down. You might say it turned it right side up. And by the way, don't miss this because the way the, Jew, the Jews looked at the shepherds that came to visit Jesus and the wise men, they thought these are the wrong kind of people to come and be with Jesus. These are the wrong people to be invited. I think that's pretty major. The first people to, to come to or be invited to come see Jesus were the roughneck, uneducated shepherds, the pagan astrologers, and a young couple who everybody thought were living in sin, Mary and Joseph. So can you imagine how received or not received Matthew's gospel was to the Jewish people, especially at first? One more thing as we get toward closing. This story has to teach us. Look what it says in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. See how God orchestrated all that? Look at verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Verse 18, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. You know, you might have thought a story would start out, kind of does start out in joy, but it ends in tragedy. 
ends in such a tragedy. Herod, realizing the Magi had pulled a fast one on him, he went into one of his furious rants, maniacal rages, and orders that all baby boys under, the, under two years of age in Bethlehem and the surrounding area would be killed. By the way, if you've ever been in a college class and heard a professor say this can't be true because it's never been documented, he might be true that it's never been documented, but most biblical scholars believe the reason it wasn't documented is because there might have been fewer of these little boys than we think. Some scholars believe there might have been 10 to 20 little boys, which is uh, horrific. But according to Herod's other horrendous deeds, this didn't even make the cut. It didn't even uh, make the charts. Professor William Albright became known as, for his role in authenticating the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948. He was also a professor and a dean of American archaeology in Israel at the time, and he concluded that Bethlehem was only about the size of a town of Camargo or less, 300 people or so. And his conclusion was there could have been as few as seven or eight little boys that were killed, which is still horrible. A lot of other scholars disagree, saying it had to be 10 to 20, maybe even 30. My thought is whether it was 30 or 1, it was horrible. But on one hand, you've got this horrible news that babies are being murdered in Bethlehem. But on the other hand, at the same time, you have this awesome news that a king has been born. A king has been born to bring us hope. A king has been born to deliver us from our sin. A king has been born to make everything that's been wrong to make it right. A king who would reverse the curse of sin and death. And the good news is Herod didn't control any of that. Herod didn't have the last word. The new king had the last word. And not only did he have the last word, he has the last word today, tomorrow, and forever. And his name is Jesus. Amen? He has the last word. I believe one day God is going to take all the all that the Herods in our life have meant for evil, and he's going to turn it over for good. He's going to take all that evil and turn it back for good. And the joy of that moment, I believe with all of my heart, will take away the pain and the hurt that maybe we've had in our hearts and our lives for a long time, where it just dissipates like a puff of smoke. It's like a woman in labor forgets her pain as soon as that baby is born. The Bible says death is swallowed up in victory. Amen? And I love the scripture in Revelation 21 verse 4 says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Amen? Chains are going to be broken. Chains were broken when Jesus came to this earth, born in a manger. Oppression ceased. Oh, we still go through everyday struggles. But he gave us the victory the moment he was born. He was born in a manger. But he didn't stay a baby in a manger. He rose to be a conquering king. Today and forever, Jesus is on our side. Do you know that Jesus is on your side this morning? He's on my side. He's my strength. He's my help. I don't care if the world is falling apart on the right, on the left, behind me, in front of me. Jesus is still Jesus. Jesus is still Lord. Jesus is still king. So when Jesus was born, he brought absolute hope. He brought a new day. He brought the dawning of a new day that we could trust in Him. And our trust in Him just starts here and ends there. Amen? For eternity. The world is this way because of the curse of sin. But Jesus came to break the curse. Jesus came to pay the ultimate price, to die on a cross, to break the curse of that sin. One day He's going to put everything 
right side up again one day and bring to an end all suffering. Think about it. Those we lost in tragedy are going to be brought back in victory. Amen? They may have been lost in tragedy, but they're going to be brought back in victory. That's powerful. That's Jesus. So my big question to you this morning is, have you ever really, and I want you to think about this, have you ever really gotten the depths of the Christmas message? Have you ever really gotten it? I believe this text I've read from today shows us that those that will seek Jesus will find him. Those that will seek him will find him. Matthew's writing, to the gospel, writing his gospel to the Jewish people, telling them that this Jesus, born in a manger, is going to grow up to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. And what he's saying, I believe, to these religious people or to the Jewish people is, hey, don't be like the religious leaders. Be more like the pagan magi. Think about that. Don't be like the religious leaders that are ignoring Jesus. Think about these pagan magi that had something burning in their heart because wise men still seek Him. These wise men had anticipated Jesus coming for a long time, and when they saw the sign, it wasn't long before they were on the road. Their bags were packed, and after a few months, they found Him. Reminds me of what God said in Deuteronomy 4.29. He says, if you seek me with all your heart. He doesn't just say be casual about it. He says, when you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. Today, if you really want to know Jesus, if you go seeking for him, just like the magi, just like the shepherds, I guarantee you're going to find him. Because that's a promise he makes to every one of us. There are a lot of us going through this life today, I think, that are like the magi, people who are hungry for something that only Jesus can satisfy. These magi believed there was something out there worth living for, even worth dying for. So they went looking for it. They were seekers. Are you hungry enough this morning to become a seeker if you're not already? Are you hungry enough to become a seeker? Because if you'll seek Jesus with all your heart, you're going to find him. So are you looking for something this morning to fill the void in your heart, in your life? There are a lot of things that this world offers all around us to try to fill up that void. But there's only one thing that's really going to fill it. There's only one thing that's really going to last. And I believe God did this on purpose so that our hearts would be drawn to him as the solution. And he sent his son, didn't he? He sent his son to live a perfect life on this earth, to die on the cross, to be raised from the dead, to bring forgiveness, fulfillment, and peace. And guess what? That was a gift. You know what our part is? Receiving that gift. Receiving that gift for all Jesus is. For all God designed Him to be for our lives. The last thing we find out from the Magi is that wise men still worship Him. It says in Matthew chapter 2.11, the Magi bowed down and worshipped Jesus as soon as they saw Him. They didn't wait. In fact, they even told Herod, if you remember the story, that their whole purpose for going to see Jesus was to worship Him. And remember the shepherds when they returned from their visit with Jesus, newborn Jesus? It says they went rejoicing, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they have seen and heard. This whole message comes down to this. I think the most appropriate way to observe Christmas is not with our culture's obsession on things and buying things. It's on worship. It's all about worship. It's not so much about our giving to each other as it is to our giving to God.
How's your giving to God this morning? Because the truth is, wise men and women still seek Him. Wise men and women still worship Him. And my prayer for this whole church is that we'll be a church full of men and women, wise men and women, that are seekers, that are willing to step out there and say, God, I'm going to seek you with all of my heart. I'm going to give you everything I have because you gave me everything you had. I pray that your hearts cry this morning. And let me ask you a question that I wish I had time to hear every one of your answers to. What began your journey with Christ? Has it even began yet? And what led you to Jesus? If you're not sure how to answer that, remember there was a baby born in a manger, not just a baby, but a Savior. A Savior for the world. As I said, became the gift of gifts. And He made it so easy for us. All we have to do is receive Him. So if you've never received this King of Kings and Lord of Lords, don't you dare leave this place today without coming up to me and say, I need Jesus. I'll pray a prayer with you and He'll write your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. This whole Christmas story gets too watered down so much of the time. It's all about a simple message. Come to me. Come to me. Come and see and go and tell. Amen. Could you stand to your feet this morning? Could you bow your hearts in prayer? Father God, I thank you for your presence in this place today. Lord God, we are so thankful that when you sent your son Jesus into this world, you sent him to be our Savior. You sent him not only for the Jews, but you sent him for all of us, for the world. You sent him to save the world. Lord, I pray today that that truth will hit home deep in our hearts, deeper than ever before, and that we will receive Jesus into our hearts and our lives today more than we've ever allowed before. Help us to be wise men and women, Lord, that are still seeking you. We want to truly find you, Lord God, and surrender ourselves over to you and bring our gifts of worship before you today and forever. I pray, Lord God, that our hearts would be like those wise men, that when we see Jesus, we'll fall down on our knees and we'll worship you, that we'll honor you, that we'll bless you for all that you blessed us with. In the name of Jesus Christ, and everyone said, Amen. God bless you all. Thank you for your crazy outfits and everything today. Go and tell. God bless you.